Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Anthropology, part of the New Books Network. I am Astrid County. Today I will be speaking with Dr. Frank Salime, who is currently an assistant professor of Near Eastern Studies at Boston College and the Department of Slavic and Eastern Languages. He has written a book, Language, Memory, and Identity in the Middle East, The Case for Lebanon. This book is an attempt to bring back to the foray of Middle East studies the issue of language as a key factor in shaping and misshaping the region, with the hope of rediscovering a broader, more honest, and less ideologically tainted discussion on the Middle East. Language, memory, and identity in the Middle East has a special focus on Lebanon, a Christian homeland, because Lebanon has traditionally acted as the region's template for change and a barometer gauging its problems and charting its progress. Dr. Slimane, thank you for um, being on the New Books Network, New Books and Anthropology podcast. Today we're going to be talking about your book, Language, Memory, and Identity in the Middle East, The Case for Lebanon. But first, I wanted to ask you some questions about your academic history and how you got to the point of where you are now. You're an assistant professor at Boston College, correct? Correct. Okay. Well, I mean, um, I'm a student of history. I was formed as a historian. And um, my area of um, specialty is uh, the modern Middle East. More specifically, I work on um, the time period uh, between 1918 and 1946. And this is my area of specialty, of course. You know, I, uh, I deal with issues, periods, events, uh, both, uh, both before and after. I dealt essentially, as I was being formed as a historian, I dealt with uh, the history of minorities in the Middle East um, during uh, the mandate period, and to be exact, the French mandate period. So I dealt with the areas that uh, eventually became Syria and Lebanon. During uh, the times I was studying the region, uh, there were no countries called Syria and Lebanon, and there, there were essentially five states that the French inherited from the Ottomans, and those uh, were the states of Greater Lebanon, the state of the Alawite Mountain, the state of the Druze Mountain, Aleppo, and Damascus, those uh, uh, states that the, the uh, French mandatory authorities had inherited actually from uh, the Ottomans. Uh, when the Ottoman Empire uh, broke up at the end of World War One, uh, what the French inherited were the administrative units uh, that, that that formed uh, that part of the Ottoman dominion in, in the Levant. Um, so my area of interest was uh, minorities, uh, non-Arab, non-Muslim uh, minorities in uh, the Levantine region. Okay. And, uh, 
branched out in later years and, and began focusing more specifically on, on the, what became the Republic of Lebanon and the Syrian Arab Republic in 1946. Okay. Um, one of the questions that I did have concerning your book was why you chose Lebanon as a case study to talk about language, memory, and identity. Well, you know, studying the Levant and studying minorities in the Levant and um, <clears throat> the, the mosaics of people that constitute the Levantine region of Greece, Lebanon uh, stands out as a, a uh, very interesting case study because it's a very small country uh, inhabited by a multitude of people of about uh, 18, 19 distinct groups in Lebanon, um, often referred to as um, uh, confessions, uh, but they're in essence uh, ethno-religious groups, ethnic groups defined uh, religiously, defined uh, by way of uh, religious nomenclature. Um, so, so Lebanon stands out because of its size. Uh, it's it's very tiny. It's about the size of, of Connecticut, to put it in, in uh, American terms. But it's inhabited by in 18 different uh, ethnic groups, if you will. Um, Syria is uh, the next um, uh, the next area of interest. It's much larger than, than Lebanon, uh, population-wise and geographically speaking. There's about 21 million Syrians, there's about uh, three and a half, uh, four million Lebanese. And uh, similar to Lebanon, Syria is also a, an ethnic uh, or ethno-religious mosaic, uh, but it's on, on a somewhat larger scale. So Lebanon uh, was naturally important to me um, because, of, because of its size and because of the, the, the severity of its, uh, of its diversity. Um, I do also have a personal history uh, with Lebanon. I was born and raised in Lebanon. I came to base, uh, I was a teenager. I came to uh, go to college in the state. So, so there was, I was, you know, I would say I was also uh, personally uh, invested in, in, in the Lebanese experiment, and that's why I decided to uh, focus on it uh, early in my um, in studies. What prompted your inspiration to write a book like this, where you're discussing the cultural identity and its relation to language, especially in the Middle East? And I also wanted to ask you, what is the Middle East? Because I know that in the Western world, especially in America, there's very there's just sweeping statements made about the Arab world and the Middle East. But what really is the Middle East? And then can you talk a little more about why? You wrote a book like this. Well, that's it. It's a very good question. What is the Middle East? Mm -hmm. um, very difficult to define the Middle East. Um, but at the same time, the term Middle East is, um, I would argue, uh, an ideologically neutral term, uh, and therefore, in a lot of ways, a satisfying term because. When you begin conflating Middle East with Arab world, this is when we begin encountering problems uh, because the Middle East is certainly not the Arab world. It is not the Muslim world. Uh, it is certainly inhabited by majorities of Arabs and Muslims, but it's much more than that. And that's what I attempted to do in 
uh, in my research and uh, in my book, and that is to show a different facet of, of the Middle East, that, um, that the Middle East is not the monolith that we are um, uh, made uh, to perceive, that it is much more than simply the Arab world or simply the Muslim world, but it's actually a mosaic of different peoples, uh, different ethnicities, different histories, different narratives, um, where, where the Arab and Arabist uh, narrative might be a dominant one, but it's not the only one. So what, what I'm attempting to do is to show a um, different face, a different interpretation of the Middle East as, as a uh, diverse uh, hybrid of, of ethnicities and languages and, and uh, histories and memories and religious groups and so forth. And how do you feel that the cultural identity and the language are related? Because you talked a lot about that very deeply throughout your book. You know, part of the problem when uh, we begin uh, broaching questions uh, pertaining to identity in the East is that um, we are hardwired in the West to look at um, ourselves. Uh, and at the world about us in terms of language. Mm -hmm. um, so, and, and this uh, instantly is not a modern phenomenon. It goes back to, to the ancient Greeks, you know, Greeks and barbarians. So everybody who spoke Greek was Greek, the rest are barbarians. Uh, by the same token, um, when we look at the world today, we look at it in terms of, and I'm talking cultural identities here, uh, we look at it in terms of language, um, and and usually uh, we use the same set of cognate words uh, in reference to identity, to ethnicity, to language, to territory. So a Swede is a person who lives in Sweden, who speaks Swedish, etc. And so we have sort of migrated this uh, this attitude, this uh, perception of ourselves to the Middle East. And uh, we have uh, constructed uh, uh, models, narratives, uh, paradigms of the Middle East based on the idea that Greek um, is the dominant language in the Middle East, uh, and therefore all the peoples inhabiting the Middle East uh, are Arabs. This, uh, incidentally, has uh, uh, been the case uh, for about... 5,000 years of recorded history in the Middle East, where people um, spoke uh, world languages, if you will, imperial languages, uh, but were not necessarily part of that imperial lot. So, for upwards of 2,000 years, uh, the bulk of Middle Easterners uh, spoke um, Sumerian, a very ancient language that, that is... Uh, that has not survived into, into modern times in any uh, fashion as a spoken uh, language. So uh, both Sumerians and non-Sumerians uh, spoke Sumerian because that was the dominant culture of civilized, uh, dominant language of civilization, the dominant language of of, uh, of empire. Uh, with the extinction, if you will, of uh, the Sumerians and their civilization came the Arameans, and uh, uh, you had uh, peoples from Arameans to others 
the Hebrews, for instance, spoke Aramaic, but weren't Arameans, um, and so on and so forth. So, so what I'm trying to get at is that there is an imbrication of cultures and civilizations in the Middle East that came and went, that brought with them their linguistic habits, uh, imposed them on, on Middle Easterners or had Middle Easterners uh, adopt them, if you will, um, and have them uh, use those languages without they, those Middle Easterners, necessarily feeling uh, that they were part of that ethnos that made use of those languages. Um, so you had Greeks, you had uh, uh, Latins, Romans. I mean, one example that I like to use is uh, to, to sort of uh, um, vulgarize that uh, uh, that model um, is a um, scene. Actually, I use it in, in one of my classes. Uh, are you familiar with uh, the movie The Passion of the Christ? Yeah. Okay. Um, and anything that struck you in that movie, I don't know if you've seen it. Yes, I did see it. Um, one thing I was surprised with was it seemed like they were trying to be accurate with Jesus speaking Aramaic, speaking other languages sometimes, depending upon who he was talking to. Yeah, I mean, that's I mean, Jesus was was not unique in in, in that we mm -hmm. understand. I mean, he was your typical um, native of the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, he happened to be a Jew. Um, he spoke Aramaic. Aramaic is what is uh, daily language. It was the, the language of uh, uh, Jewish commoners, if you will. Uh, so he spoke uh, Aramaic. He spoke uh, was his native language. Mm -hmm. um, to his jailers, uh, he spoke in Greek uh, because his jailers were soldiers. And uh, one of the the language of the masses at the time was Greek, because uh, the Romans came and replaced the Greeks who preceded them. Uh, with the Roman governor, um, he spoke Latin, because that was the language of administration. And in the temple, he spoke the holy language of the Jewish people, which uh, was um, biblical, uh, biblical Hebrew. Um, so he he was not special. He was not unique. He was a child of his times, and he he's very much uh, similar to modern Middle Easterners. Um, in the case of Jesus, uh, it is assumed that he was. I mean, he came from a priestly family, so one might assume that he was uh, educated. Uh, but most. The uneducated, I would say, illiterate Middle Easterners are able to function in multiple languages, um, and 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 that is uh, precisely due to uh, their place in the world uh, as a crossroads of uh, civilizations and languages and ethnicities, and the fact that they live in an area that, um, uh, uh, geographically speaking. Um, it has uh, witnessed an, a, an imbrication, a succession of uh, different cultures that have left their linguistic and, and other uh, cultural markings uh, on the region. I see. So you're saying that essentially in the Middle East, language is not necessarily going to be 
inextricably linked to your cultural identity, like how we see it in the West. Exactly. Because you could be speaking different languages. This is one issue, uh, um, this is one problem uh, I encounter um, uh, in references to the Middle East as as the Arab world, that is assuming that uh, people are defined uh, linguistically by way of the Arabic language. Another problem is uh, the fact that uh, Arabic, uh, unlike many uh, living languages, many spoken languages, many languages that one uses uh, extemporaneously, natively spoken languages, uh, Arabic is not uh, a natively language. And I would, you know, uh, take that argument further and say that um, not only is it not used natively, uh, Arabic is nobody's natively spoken language. Uh, Arabic is a a cultic, uh, ceremonial language, a literary language, it's a liturgical language, but it is not spoken uh, natively. What people speak uh, throughout the Middle East um, are bevies of languages uh, that are uh, generally referred to as Arabic, uh, but are as uh, uh, different and distinct uh, from Arabic as uh, English is, uh, or French is, but I would say also English uh, uh, is distinct and different from Latin. So on on the one hand, you have uh, Latin fit in 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 uh, um, you're in context. Uh, you have Latin as uh, the uh, cultic language or literary language, if you will. Um, and you have Romance languages and English that are the natively spoken uh, languages of uh, commoners and educated people at once. Uh, so in medieval Europe, uh, one spoke uh, uh, their native dialects. They were called dialects at the time. They could have been um, dialects of French, dialects of what later became Italian, dialects of Portuguese and so forth. And when they went to school, they studied Latin, uh, the language that was written, the language of culture at the time, the language of literature, and so forth. That is exactly the situation in today's Middle East. So, um, native Middle Easterners, uh, depending on where they are uh, in the Middle East, uh, are born and grow up speaking uh, distinct languages that are their native languages, and if they happen to go to school, they learn what we commonly refer to as Arabic. Um, so, so what we commonly refer to as Arabic is is a is a learned language. It is is not a language that one acquires uh, spontaneously. Uh, that one acquires. Uh, um, that could refer to as a maternal uh, language, langue maternelle, as they say in, in French. It is uh, so. So, in a sense, Arabic is nobody's langue maternelle, nobody's maternal language. So, it's not like a vernacular language that everyone who says they speak Arabic would actually be able to speak and understand the same way. Correct. And I do remember you saying in your book that there's a modern standard Arabic. That's what you called it, and that that was more like Quranic Arabic, like. Arabic that was used by the educated and by the elite, which I found that to be really interesting because 
we don't really hear that distinction about what it means to speak Arabic or to be Arab, that there is all these different variations of how that is happening in different countries and different areas. And I wanted you to talk a little more about how that modern standard Arabic is related to or not related to a regular person like a person in Lebanon and why that may or may not be a part of their identity. Well, I would argue that all of these languages are part of people's identity. I mean, the part of people's heritage. Uh, uh, heritage is not um, something for one to to cherry pick, to pick and choose, and say, okay, this is part. Of the, the whole thing is part of their heritage. Uh, the the uh, the problems that some people in the Middle East, especially minorities, who deem themselves uh, different uh, from the Arabs, the problems that they have is um, being pigeonholed as Arabs on account of uh, their use of uh, the Arabic language. With regards to modern standard Arabic, modern standard, uh, standard Arabic is, uh, if you will, a modern version of classical Arabic, what is commonly referred to as classical Arabic or Quranic Arabic. Uh, so to put it in, uh, in English terms, uh, modern standard Arabic would be um, modern American English to uh, the English of Char, if you will. So that uh, for somebody who is not versed in the English of Chaucer, modern standard Arabic might uh, 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 modern standard Arabic might uh, pose some problems. Um, to me, for instance, as somebody who learned English uh, as an adult, I cannot read Chaucer without a dictionary. Uh, so to me, uh, there is some difficulty between the Chaucer English and the modern standard American English. So um, people who are versed in Quranic Arabic or in classical Arabic uh, might have some issues with uh, modern standard Arabic. But with regards with the dialectal forms, what we commonly refer to as dialects of Arabic, there is a very uh, wide difference uh, between modern standard Arabic and uh, the uh, spoken languages. As I said before, uh, if you go to school and get a formation, formal formation in modern standard Arabic, uh, it is a completely alien language to you. Of course, uh, that doesn't mean that in the spoken dialects uh, there are uh, uh, no Arabic vocabulary, for instance. There's a wealth of Arabic vocabulary in uh, the uh, spoken uh, variants, um, the dialectal variants, the demotics, the spoken demotics in the Middle East. Uh, but uh, there's a wealth of Vocabulary also uh, comes from Greek, uh, from Latin, uh, from Turkish, from French, and, and so forth. So um, the, the spoken dialects of the Middle East, depending on where you are, can have a substrate uh, that comes from Aramaic, that comes from Syriac, that, that comes even from Hebrew, and the abstract, that is the vocabulary of the languages, can come from, from anywhere, and, and certainly uh, Arabic has made big contributions to uh, to uh, the uh, uh, the vocabulary of the spoken dialects. 
but there are groups in modern-day Lebanon, in modern-day Syria, in modern-day Iraq that make the argument that their spoken languages uh, cannot be uh, referred to as uh, as Arabic without sort of oversimplifying uh, uh, the uh, the situation. And I'm talking about linguists here. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, who make the argument that that uh, those dialects are uh, languages in their own right and should not be uh, sort of uh, dismissed as as dialects and should uh, uh, begin being referred to as uh, bona fide languages. Um, so I have a question about the assumed uniformity of the Middle East in general and what you think that assumption has or how that role the assumption has played in studying the Middle East and the West? Well, um, I make the argument in the book that part of the reason uh, we are unable to get to the bottom of, of the issues, the problems, the volatility in the Middle East is our instinct. Um, um, in, in looking at it as as this monolith, uh, I think this is a, a an absolute uh, paradigm. Looking at the Middle East as the Arab world uh, or the Islamic world or what have you, we need to um, begin uh, validating. Uh, I'm not talking about dismissing the Arabist narrative of the Middle East. There are bona fide Arabs in the Middle East. There are the dominant culture in the Middle East, and they should certainly uh, be given precedence, if you will, but uh, uh, minority narratives in the Middle East should be valorized, uh, should be given some attention, should be looked at, and we should start looking at the Middle East as the the mosaic that it is, as this hybrid of identities that it is, and 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 stop looking at it in, in sort of monistic terminologies of Arab worlds or Muslim worlds or Arab Muslim worlds and so forth. And that's why I am, for instance, a, uh, a very strong proponent of the term Middle East, uh, even though it is. Uh, uh, it's kind of uh, neutral, it's, it's tasteless, odorless, if you will, uh, but it's accurate. So with your book, you did talk about how you don't, you don't want to dismiss any previous approaches, but you wanted to add to the conversation a, a new approach. What is this new approach that you're hoping to add to the conversation? And what kind of impression are you hoping this book will leave on readers? I mean, look, we we are dealing with a major issue in Syria today. Um, there's a uh, civil war raging in Syria. Um, and, uh, analysts, uh, people invested in uh, the, the the history and well-being of the Syrian people. Um, uh, go on speaking in terms of these uh, obsolete paradigms of Syria as this unitary, unified, uh, coherent, cohesive state. Uh, when in reality, Syria is a mosaic of ethnicities, uh, um, linguistic groups, 
cultural groups, uh, religious groups that were forced uh, to live together, and they have led this uneasy existence for the past um, 70, 80 years or so. Um, so I think it would be very useful for us to look at history, the history of Syria prior to 1936, where there was nothing called Syria. There was uh, no people uh, who referred to themselves as Syrians or felt that they were somehow Syrians, but uh, were a, a, a collection of ethnicities and ethno-religious groups and cultural groups and religious groups that had different nomenclatures in referring to themselves. So when we approach Syria, I think it would be it would be helpful to look at this history and and uh, look at the diversity of Syria and say that okay there might be a different narrative that we can we can draw lessons from a different model that we can draw lessons from and say that uh, we don't have to think in terms of this united Syria that perhaps uh, you know a, a Syria that is composed of different cantons of of an Alawite mountain that is an autonomous administrative unit or an autonomous state, if you will, or a Druze uh, autonomous unit or a Sunni autonomous unit uh, in Damascus or a Christian autom autonomous unit in, in Aleppo or, um, uh, or a Kurdish autonomous unit and so on and so forth. Uh, so this is, not, um, this is not a prescription that I'm making. This is a... a uh, a return to the past, uh, drawing lessons from the past, looking at the map of a mere 80 years ago, what Syria 80 years ago looked like. Um, so it's it's um, it would really be helpful to to look uh, at the history uh, when when we start sort of uh, plotting or, or or charting the uh, the future of Syria. And and Syria is one example. The entire Middle East. I would limit myself to the Levantine region of the Middle East, and that would include uh, uh, modern-day Lebanon, modern-day Israel, and parts of uh, certainly modern-day Syria and parts of uh, modern-day Jordan. Okay. Well, we're winding down to the end of the interview, so I wanted to ask you, what projects are you working on now? Or what's your the next things that you're going to be writing about? I am actually... Right now, uh, I'm in Paris. Um, I'm working in the uh, Foreign Ministry Archives, and I have just returned from a very short trip uh, to Lebanon and um, working in Lebanon on um, uh, a private archive of a early 20th century Lebanese um, businessman, uh, intellectual, and author. Uh, so I'm in the process of writing uh, the uh, modern history of uh, Lebanon uh, and Syria uh, through these private archives, the archives and, and private correspondence of uh, this uh, Lebanese author. So it's at the same time a biography, um, but it's also uh, a history. To, to give you a very brief example, this fellow that I'm writing, uh, that, that we, Whose who's archive I'm, I'm mining. His name is Charles Quam. He was a francophone uh, poet um, in in Lebanon. Between he wrote um, the bulk of his uh, literary output was between uh, 1919 
1960. Uh, he was born in 1894. He died in 1963. Prior to becoming a a, a poet, he was a he was a business tycoon. He was a, a visionary in, in business before he became sort of uh, this inspired poet, if you will. Um, in uh, 1911, he graduated high school and traveled to the United States. He was uh, 17. He was barely 17 years old. And um, uh, he opened a uh, concession store on Broadway Avenue, and uh, I mentioned earlier he was a francophone. Um, he became a francophone poet, so his his intellectual language was French. He um, his language of education was French. He was French educated, uh, but he spent about a year on uh, Broadway Avenue in New York, and he he attended uh, the same Broadway shows night after night for about a year, and that's how he learned English. So during his stay in the United States, he um, he met Henry Ford, and I, I should mention again that he was a teenager. Uh, he met Henry Ford, and he got he got a promise from Henry Ford around 1911, 1912, uh, that he would be the exclusive agent of Ford Motor Cars uh, in the Levant. And uh, do I have time to tell the story? Sure, sure. Go okay. ahead. So this this fellow Charles Corm, um, for about twenty days to a month, he would go to Henry Ford's office and he would sit in front of his, his secretary the whole day, um, waiting for an audience with this great American industrialist. Um, at the end of the day, he would get kicked out. Um, um, towards the end of the month, I don't know if the secretary felt sorry for him, was uh, really infatuated, impressed by his uh, persistence. Uh, she granted him this audience with Henry Ford. And Charles Corm goes and meets with uh, uh, Henry Ford and tells him, essentially, uh, you know, that's straight to the chase. And he says, I want to be the exclusive agent of Ford Motor Cars uh, in, uh, in Lebanon. Uh, so Henry Ford asks him, um, where is Lebanon? And we're talking 1911, 1912. As I said earlier, there was nothing called Lebanon, nothing called Syria at that time. Mm -hmm. So this kid points to a, uh, you know, a globe, a map on, on Henry Ford's desk, uh, points to uh, an area uh, that was at the time Mount Lebanon, and he tells him this is Lebanon. Henry Ford says, son, do you have roads in Lebanon? And Charles Coulomb says, you give me the cars and I'll build the roads. And, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. And essentially, this Charles Coulomb, by 1920, uh, began importing Ford cars into Lebanon in a country uh, that barely existed at the time, that certainly did not have an infrastructure uh, uh, for those, uh, for those uh, vehicles. Um, and so what I'm reading, the archive that I'm reading now, is actually the history of Lebanon through uh, the importation of Ford motor cars to Lebanon, because with the cars came the roads, and not only the roads. I mean, you, you see documents that, that this businessman, Charles Corm, um, sort of musing about the fact that, you know, he's opening a dealership in, uh, say, Tripoli, Lebanon. Tripoli, the area where he's building the dealership has... Um, 
He has no access to that area. There are no roads. There are no pharmacies, no restaurants for his employees, um, no homes. So uh, with the sort of movement of the cars into that area of northern Lebanon, he built roads, he built bridges, he built uh, uh, homes, he built pharmacies, restaurants, uh, grocery stores, and so forth. So, so that's... That's in a nutshell what I'm working on, the, the sort of uh, history of modern Lebanon and Syria and uh, uh, Palestine, what later became uh, Israel in 1948, uh, through the, uh, the propagation, the building of these various dealerships, uh, Ford car dealerships. And I should add here that uh, the region that I'm interested in is, was under French mandate, so the natural impulse would be to have, if you were to have cars, would be to have French cars. But oh. by 1946, about 45% of the vehicles in Lebanon and Syria were Ford cars. So that, that should give you an idea of about what this guy was doing at the time. Sounds really interesting. I wonder if that be finished when you plan on publishing it. Uh, well, I'm, I've just begun to scratch the surface. I've <laughs> done about you know five percent of the work. Uh, I expect to do some work uh, here in the, the um, uh, French Foreign Ministry archives uh, for the next three weeks. I return to the States uh, early August, and I expect to return to Lebanon and France uh, uh, later uh, in the year through uh, 2012-2013, and I hope uh, that the, the book will be finished uh, in 2013. Okay. Well, Dr. Frank Salome, thank you very much for being on this podcast today. Uh, once again, the book is Language, Memory, and Identity in the Middle East, The Case for Lebanon. So thank you very much. Thank you, Astrid. I appreciate the, uh, the time and your patience. This has been Astrid County for New Books and Anthropology, part of the New Books Network. I've been speaking with Dr. Frank Salome about his book, Language, Memory, and Identity in the Middle East, The Case for Lebanon. It is available now via Lexington Books, a wholly owned subsidiary of the Roman and Littlefield Publishing Group Incorporated. Thanks for listening.